this yes. is hell. Okey doke. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, according to multiple sources, including former White House officials and those familiar with the re-election campaign of Donald Trump. The former president has apparently made an even harder right turn in his rhetoric, which now sounds like that of a full-blown dictator. Specifically, it appears Trump has taken a page from former Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte's playbook. Duterte, while in office from 2016 to 2022, infamously executed anywhere between nearly 7,000 to more than 12,000 suspects in his war on drugs. Not that this kind of admiration by Trump for such a brutal leader should be a surprise. Only four months after taking office, a leaked transcript of phone records to the Washington Post and New York Times received or revealed a call by Trump to Duterte. While Duterte's government was in the midst of executing thousands, records show Trump said to Duterte, I just wanted to congratulate you because I am hearing of the unbelievable job on the drug problem. Many countries have the problem. We have a problem. But what a great job you are doing. And I just wanted to call and tell you that. But what you may not know is Trump's gone full Duterte. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with journalist Asawin Subsang, who co-wrote the uh, co-wrote the Rolling Stone. That's a lot harder to say than I thought. Co-wrote the Rolling Stone exclusive. Trump plans to bring back firing squads, group executions if he re retakes White House. The former president wants to expand the use of the death penalty and expand the federal government's options for carrying out death sentences, which he co-wrote with Patrick Rice. Oswin is a senior political writer at Rolling Stone. But wait, there's more. We will also be speaking with Swin about another article he co-wrote. Twitter kept an entire database of Republican requests to censor posts. Elon Musk's Twitter files focus on Democrats, but former administration officials and Twitter employees say Trump's team and other Republicans routinely demanded posts be taken down, which he wrote with Adam Ronsley. In that writing, Swin and Adam discovered that Republicans are working hard to cancel Democrats' free speech on the social media platform, despite complaining Democrats were doing the same thing to, de to them. Which... They are, as both of our two major parties are trying to keep those who disagree with them off Twitter. Swin is a former senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and one of the founding co-hosts of the podcast Fever Dreams. He has also been on staff at Mother Jones and the Bangkok Post. He is co-author, along with Lachlan Marquet, of the 2020 book Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. Swin is a lecturer at the University of Cincinnati School of Journalism, and you can follow him on Twitter at Swin, S-W-I-N, and then the number 2424. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, anything new with you? How was your weekend? Because mine was a complete failure. So first, how was your weekend? Uh, it was I I don't know it was fine it wasn't anything <laughs> it to talk sound, about it doesn't sound like anything exciting for you I just I'm tired I'm just tired and me I just, too <laughs> I don't what really the care. hell like who cares what happened I, I don't know I'm wondering if that <laughs> this heater is new in here yeah we got new batteries um so uh, <laughs> yeah it's pretty fancy uh, but yeah I keep thinking there's something in the air from the East Palestine derailment or something that's making everybody just thoroughly exhaust every person I talk to now. Nowadays. I think it's just, I don't know. 
I mean, I think it's just, well, it's late winter, it's late capitalism, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm deep I'm deep within PMS, so I don't know what's wrong with everybody else, but I've got some reason. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason. So like I said, my weekend was a total bust, a complete failure, and that I totally failed at relaxing, which sucks because a couple weeks ago, we had uh, Sheila Liming on the show to discuss her book, Hanging Out, The Radical Act of uh, Killing Time, which actually was in the New York Times uh, book review this weekend, and she got a glowing review. And uh, she made this point about how more and more we think that we need to always be productive, and we rarely take the time to simply enjoy our time. So my goal for the entire week this week is to work so I don't have to do anything but enjoy time next weekend I, I, I've not been able to sleep lately which doesn't make any sense I don't know it, I've been thinking about since talking to Sheila on the show what is it that I do that I don't consider work and I swear there is very little that I do that I don't consider work outside of like maybe before the show sitting in a shower for about 25 minutes I think that's the only thing I do and what am I doing in there? Preparing for work. More important than any of that, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is where do you see yourself in five years? We got a ton of responses on Patreon, which we'll be sharing in a little bit, but one of them is absolutely stupid and spectacular at the same time. I haven't looked at any yet. Oh, there's one in there that you're just gonna... I'm gonna have to brace myself. Yes, it's kind of cringeworthy, but at the same time incredibly clever. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can send an email to chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. If your answer is our favorite, you will get our, your choice of This Is Hell stuff, the t-shirt, the trucker's cap, the winner beanie, the coffee mug, the face covering, the face mask, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from this century, as well as a tote bag, yes. We have a freaking tote bag. And you can find all that stuff at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Lindsay has this week's hangover cure, which is ridiculous. This week's hangover cure is Borgs. (laughs) Borgs. Dailymeal.com ran a story titled, Borgs are a new college party drinking trend. But what are they? (laughs) The article states, Borgs involve a gallon bottle and a hangover-proof formula that will ensure that college students who love to party still make it to their morning classes. It'll last all night long if they pace themselves, too. And it even has electrolytes to prevent those nasty morning hangover headaches. Borgs, which one TikTok user said came out of necessity during the COVID-19 pandemic, are a personalized approach to drinking, so it's not a surprise that they're now everywhere. After all, we're still in a pandemic. The gallon-sized hangover cure that's become TikTok's latest fascination is the Borg. No, that's not short for cyborg. It's a blackout rage gallon. Blackout Rage Gallon. You heard that correct. Yeah. 
It's ridiculous. Borgs, which are basically the definition of bring your own booze, are carried in gallon-sized containers so college students can share memories without sharing germs. <laughs> Borgs typically contain half water, half vodka, <laughs> a caffeinated flavor enhancer, and powdered electrolytes. Substance, preve- substance use prevention expert Aaron Monroe told NBC News that Borgs give college students complete control over how they drink because they allow them to pace themselves throughout the night. Although Borgs shouldn't be the only harm reduction technique partiers use, Monroe described them as really solid harm reduction. And it's all thanks to some savvy college students in a years-long pandemic. That makes this week's Hangover Cure Borgs brought to you by the pandemic. By the way, do you know any college students who pace themselves while drinking? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it kind of blows up. I, well, the whole thing here, half, it sounds like, okay, gallon size. So I'm assuming they fill the whole thing if they need it that big. That's still have a gallon of vodka. <laughs> I know. Exactly. It makes no sense. That's a lot. <laughs> and uh, it, by the way, again, Borgs. Not bongs, although bongs are a far better hangover cure. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. And if you value completely independent, non-commercial, anti-corporate radio, show your support for WNUR. And this is hell by going to WNUR.org slash donate right now to show your support. WNUR strives to provide a forum for underrepresented music and ideas by promoting musicians, musical genres, news, public affairs issues and athletic events often overlooked by major media outlets. Moreover, WNUR aims to provide an inclusive space for people to learn and express themselves by exploring and promoting underrepresented content and in turn sharing that knowledge with others. Phonathon ensures that WNUR along with its 400 plus students and staff can continue to be a voice and guiding light for underrepresented tastes and to be a place where generations of Northwestern students can form friendships lasting a lifetime. So show your appreciation for WNUR being the first station to air This Is Hell and now doing so for over 26 years by going to WNUR.org slash donate and as it is fundraiser February apparently NUR is not the only station that carries This Is Hell that's raising money right now. CKUW, the University of Winnipeg campus and community radio station, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, is also in the midst of their fun drive. CKUW is a nonprofit, volunteer-run organization. CKUW does not air paid advertising, as the station prefers to be supported by the community and dedicated listeners. CKUW is listener-oriented, listener-supported, as opposed to commercial radio, which is advertiser-oriented and advertiser-supported. To show your support for CKUW, just visit CKUW.ca, where you'll see all of their donation levels. You can email us at chuckatthisishell.com, message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM us via Twitter. Email email us. And if you do, we will likely read your email on air. Patrick L. writes, Hey Chuck, recently heard a couple interviews that I thought would make great guests on This Is Hell. Tad Scott Nicky. I heard an interview with him about his book, The Sympathetic Consumer, Moral Critique in Capitalist Culture, just before listening to your episode with Boyce, Holt, Holt, Boyce Upholt on the frightening cost of cheap eggs, and there was a lot of overlap talking about consumer activism. Also, Sid Hearth 
Kara, who just came out with a new book about cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Sounds very literally like hell. All the best, Patrick. So uh, really appreciate it, Patrick. Um, Tad has this idea of the sympathetic consumer. He offers a comparative historical study of consumer activism. In, in, in the book, he shows in vivid detail how activists uh, wrestled with the broader implications of commodity exchange. And the book is basically about considering where you get your stuff from and how it affects the people who made it. In the other book, uh, which he mentioned, Siddharth Kara's new book, it's called Cobalt Red. How the blood of the Congo powers our lives. And it's all about how cobalt, which is a major product for a lot of our electronic devices, tablets, laptops, smartphones, electric vehicles, roughly 75% of that world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Congo. And that's why they've been having ongoing wars. Those ongoing wars are over cobalt. So tell us, would you like to hear us discuss either the sympathetic consumer and or cobalt red here on This Is Hell? If you want to hear us interview either of them, email me, chuck at thisishell.com and place your vote. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, anything else? Coming up on the show, former President Trump is dreaming of firing squads and mass executions. While both major political parties are trying to censor each other's free speech, we'll tell you what happened on our most recent episode of This Is Hell on Patreon, exclusively for our subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Former producer Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history, will be uh, giving us a peek at the past inside the present as he provides us with a historical context from the past to have a better understanding of our present. This week, Sebastian continues his coverage of Black History in his third installment of Past Inside the Present, Black History Month. Today, Sebastian will be talking about the Jim Crow era and what that entailed and how the spirit of that era is still alive and kicking in the United States today. And we'll tell you what's happening the rest of this week here on This Is Hell. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. Apparently, former President Trump's fascination with killing people continues, and it looks like both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are trying to keep people they don't like off Twitter. Here to give us the skinny journalist Asuwen Subsang co-wrote the Rolling Stone exclusive Trump plans to bring back firing squads, group executions if he retakes the White House. And we'll also be speaking to Swin about another article he co-wrote. Twitter kept entire database of Republican requests to censor posts. You can follow Aswin on Twitter at Swin24. That's S-W-I-N and then the numbers two and four. Welcome to This Is Hell, Aswin. Thank you so much for having me. Ed, thank you so much for being on our show. You start by sharing the question Donald Trump repeatedly asked some close associates in the run-up to the 2024 presidential campaign. Three people familiar with the situation tell Rolling Stone. And that question that Trump is apparently asking close associates is, what do you think of firing squads? Trump is... I mean, what do you think of firing squads? (laughs) (laughs) I think they're tacky. They don't dress well. Uh, so Trump is known for uh, fiery rhetoric. Do you think this is just blusters, possibly even Trump supporters leaking something that they believe will rally their base? Do you think this is just part of his campaign or do you think there's something real to this? So much of what Trump says publicly and privately, uh, including while he is president of the United States and leader of the free world, of course, a lot of it was bluster, but so much of it, including this, I would argue, is not just bluster. And uh, to 
give you some examples of what I mean by that, I'm going to uh, do a very brief uh, history lesson, if if you don't mind. Um, back in 2015 and 2016, one of the things that Trump was running on for the Republican nomination and then the presidency, which he, of course, won, was bringing back the death penalty or doing the death penalty in a big way. He would talk about how much he loved the death penalty and how much he uh, thought that we're not doing enough about it now. And, you know, you got to get quote unquote, tougher on criminals. And this is one of the things I'm going to do. And uh, anybody who Googles Donald Trump's name with uh, the term death penalty or cap punishment uh, knows that it's been a major fixation of his in uh, for for years, if not decades. You can argue that his first major political foray in Manhattan was when he took out actual newspaper ads calling for the execution of the Central Park Five. We obviously know how uh, uh, those individuals were later on cleared and how Donald Trump to this day refuses to apologize for any of that or, or admit that, oh, maybe I got that one wrong and I should have called for um, uh, the executions of these uh, not guilty and cleared individuals. So uh, when he gets to the uh, presidency, um, he has um, ideological fellow travelers who are, shall we say, more are concerned with the actual details and policy minutia than uh, Donald Trump is. But what they have in common is that they both want more prisoners, specifically here federal prisoners, executed. So uh, the Jeff Sessions era Justice Department gets to work on this issue. Um, uh, Jeff Sessions, while he's attorney general, is not able to fully consummate these policy changes. But once uh, attorney general Bill Barr gets in there, uh, he is someone who for decades, and he has all of this in writing during his time as AG when he was um, there when George H.W. Bush was president of the United States. Um, Bill Barr is extremely committed ideologically to the death penalty, uh, believes it is uh, a uh, excellent form of justice in America. I believe he believes it's a deterrent be uh, beyond all the evidence to the contrary. And... Um, when we spoke to Bill Barr for a uh, prior story at Rolling Stone earlier um, uh, this year, uh, he told us that in, I believe, the summer of 2019, he was having an unrelated meeting with uh, Donald Trump in the Oval Office. And as he was preparing to leave, he offhandedly mentions, oh, by the way, we're restarting federal executions. And Donald Trump is, is kind of perks up and he's uh, excited about this. And he's like, oh, that's great. Uh, you, are, are you... Uh, what do you think of the death penalty? Are you, are you for it? Which is a funny thing to ask your attorney general, because you should know what your <laughs> top lawman's position is on crucial things like federal capital punishment. But putting that aside for, for a moment, um, it takes a while for his administration to restart fe federal executions. This is obviously 2019 to the 2020 period, so it's at the tail end of his term in office. But they managed to restart it, despite all these various court challenges. And an important thing to remember is that in the final six months of Trump's presidency, he and his Justice Department oversaw the uh, executions of more federal prisoners than his 10 presidential predecessors combined. It was a historic run, uh, a killing spree, as many people and activists and lawyers have described it, that Trump and Bill Barr undertook. Um, it, it accelerated after he lost the presidency to um, uh, Joe Biden, 
uh, Bill Barr all but told Rolling Stone that the reason more individuals weren't added to this uh, um, execution blitz is simply because Joe Biden became president. Uh, when asked if um, more people would have been added, um, had it not been for Trump's election loss, uh, Bill Barr succinctly respond, responded, uh, yes, that was the expectation, end quote. Um, so this, this, this isn't a conversation that's being held in abstract. Um, this was something that Trump did to a historic scale during his final six months in office. And this was being done while all these other machineries of death were concurrently running at the same time during uh, the end of the Trump era. There was, of course, the coronavirus hellscape. There were the mass protest movements uh, against police brutality and racial injustice and uh, the, the rioting that came with it, uh, along with Trump's extremely heavy-handed response to it. There was the economic implosion. Obviously, there was a lot going on, but almost in the backdrop, shall we say, of all of that happening, Trump was following through with his campaign promise of being extremely ruthless with the federal death penalty. And towards the end of his administration, something that his Justice Department did go ahead with, I believe circa December 2020, so obviously very close to the end of his uh, first and maybe, maybe not only term in office, um, the Justice Department actually does start the paperwork to try to bring back outdated modes of execution. And these include things like gallows and firing squads, things that Donald Trump, as we've uh, reported, and as uh, uh, we've stated previously, he is very enamored by. Um, if you talk to people who used to work for him in the Trump White House, they will tell you that when he has talked about this, he is really into things like lining up people uh, for a firing squad. He believes that's the way you have to do it because there's more spectacle and bang to it and he also believes like he, 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 he in his opinion and again uh there are reasons to believe that he is actually wrong about this in terms of which procedure or mode of execution is more painful to the prisoner uh but he believes the way we do with lethal injection is too nice it look it looks too clean you basically in his mind he he believes you put a person to sleep and that's how you kill him. no no he wants hangings he wants maybe even beheadings he definitely wants guns going off uh to put the fear of god into x y or z criminals or members of ms 13. Uh, so this was something because again joe biden won the 2020 election trump and his government were not able to fully consummate uh our new reporting at rolling stone shows that uh, in the conversations he's had with uh, various um, uh, close advisors recently as he's talking about, okay, what should my 2024 campaign sh should look like? What should my administration look like if I get to get in the White House? Uh, what, what should that be like? And what do I hate so much about how Joe Biden has, has been approaching during things like crime policy and crime politics? Uh, he keeps bringing up over and over again uh, the firing squads and desires for things like group executions. Um, and so these are actually policy preferences. Trump is not that much of a policy guy. As you and your listeners truly know, he's not much of a quote-unquote details man. But when it comes to the details that he does care about and the things that he hasn't been willing to let go of since the end of his last administration, um, uh, the death and the killing and the forms of executions are 
uh, definitely among his, the policy preferences, shall we say, that stick out in his mind. And he's not willing to let go of it right now. And to your earlier question, and thank you for um, um, indulging me as I've sort of been uh, a bit more loquacious about this than I was expecting to do at the beginning of the call. Um, these are not things that can simply be brushed off because it is in the basket of things where Trump and his uh, then administration did follow through with executions in a big way. So this is absolutely not in the category of things that you can laugh off when, as, as merely and only Donald Trump spouting off in private or in public. Um, uh, certainly, there are a lot of things that are in that category that we hoped uh, uh, perhaps were not in that category. Uh, but in terms of some of the things that he has said in public on a rally stage, I believe back in October, this was not something that we reported on that occurred behind closed doors. He was proud enough to say this in public um, among his throngs of fans at the political rally. And as you might be able to guess, it was received with uh, rapturous applause and whooping and, uh, and cheers. Uh, he said that he has heard that in other countries or in other regimes, uh, when they execute the criminal or the drug dealers, uh, they mail the bullet or the shell of the round to the families of the deceased and, and charge them for the cost of the bullet. Uh, this is something that he endorsed as good policy and said in public during his rally back in October that the United States should do here to deal with our crime and drug problem. Um, I, I might have to do a little bit more Google diving on this, but I am fairly certain that that is a practice that has been endorsed by various autocratic and totalitarian dictatorships in 21st and uh, 20th century history. So um, um, I... I I, I don't doubt that that is something that former President Trump would like to bring to American soil as an actual legal practice that our federal justice system undertakes. Um, having said that, um, that is something that I think that if Trump ever becomes president again, and he and his Justice Department try to make that policy, that is something that I'm somewhat confident would be entangled in, shall we say, court and legal challenges for a long, long time. So at least at least we have that to cling to, I guess. So what happened, because as, while you were replying, all I could think of is back in 2016 when Trump was running for president, he would say this fiery rhetoric and get his uh, base, he'd rally his base, and then it would seem like media would just kind of dismiss it as this is the kind of rhetoric that you hear during the primaries uh, at, a, at a rally trying to, you know, get your base to vote for you, to support you again, and the, nobody has ever really held accountable for during the primary season what they say because the media seems to want to frame it, want to have this narrative that this is just to the base and want, and they'll calm down with their rhetoric once they get in the general election. That seems to be the narrative that we're, or the framing that we're always given. Why do you think that is the case? Why do we dismiss what candidates say during the primaries? And what happens when we do? What happens, when, uh, what happens to our understanding of candidates' policies when we just dismiss what they say during the primaries as partisan rhetoric to rally a base? It, it is not to speak too cynically about it, but it is almost the considered the norm in American discourse and politics that if X, Y, or Z politician says something on the stump, there is an incredibly good chance they are um, um, uh, making an empty promise 
that this is just something you say and then you move on and when you govern well new realities or desires crop up or whatever um with with, with trump when he says a lot of these outlandish gory sounding things he doesn't always get the whole pie but i guess my broader point is he gets at least uh uh some of it or a significant portion of it um obviously i was trying to illustrate that while i was talking about his historic uh killing spree at the during the final six months of his presidency um he talked a lot about uh wanting to cling to power after he lost the election to uh joe biden he didn't uh get to autocratically do that he didn't get to stay in the oval office longer than uh um, than he was supposed to, according to the set date of Joe Biden's inauguration. But we all know what happened on January 6th. So he is again and again and again, as a politician and as a leader, shown a willingness to try to go the extra mile. And even though he may not walk the entire mile, figuratively or whatever, um, he 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 will he, he has shown um, a willingness and. Um, and actual scenarios in which he perpetrates a lot of damage on the path to getting there. not just rhetorical, but actually real world tangible um, uh, damage that oftentimes has an extremely bloody human cost. Um, this isn't Obama in 2007 and 2008 saying that he endorsed card check or saying that if people were to strike while he was president, he would put on a comfortable pair of shoes and walk on that picket line with them. Um, uh, that I, I think, as time very quickly showed, was a bluster and something that Obama probably, when he said it, was not necessarily willing to do if elected leader of the free world. Uh, Trump going out there and saying, uh, let's bomb the S out of uh, uh, ISIS and do all these brutal things with our military. Again, bluster because he wanted to sound tough during uh, 2015 and 2016 he wanted to win the primary and then win the general election but when he got into office he and his uh, willing participants in his administration and his defense department uh very quickly stripped away all of the obama era red tape that kind of had this patina of oh yeah we're killing a lot of civilians overseas with obama's uh ranked up drone war but we'll we'll put on these guardrails because you know i guess it makes us feel better as an administration trump and his administration did away with all of that immediately and i think starting in 2017 you very quickly saw a very steep uptick in civilian casualties overseas in trump's drone wars even compared to obama's so um it is a whether it's Trump or Ron DeSantis or any of these Republican heavy hitters talking about uh, policy desires that uh, they have that have to do with death, destruction, federal executions, um, um, health care, anything like that. Um, it, I think it is a would be a horrific mistake not to take them at their word, given what we've seen over the past several years. You also point out that one of the sources recounts Trump musing about television footage of federal executions, including showing condemned prisoners in the final moments of their lives. Do we have the checks and balances to stop Trump or any president from fulfilling their fantasies of things like not only executing people, but televising those executions? Well, 
maybe we do, but also maybe we don't. Because as we saw when Trump are the Oval Office for four years, there were plenty of times where the so-called checks or balances, including but not limited to his own staff, would be able to kind of talk him down from some of the nuttier and or illegal things that he really, really wanted to do. And then they just didn't happen and he moved on. So he moved on to trying to do other uh, destructive and or illegal things, some of which he was able to pull uh, off, some of which very much not. Um, but then at the same time, we saw time and time again how the so-called deep state and uh, Trump's closest advisors and national security lieutenants were not able to stop him from doing things that he as president were unilaterally allowed technically to authorize. So there was that time that um, I think there was satellite footage that had to do with Iran that he thought was cool and he wanted to have it immediately just classified so he could tweet it out because he thought it'd be a fun trinket for his presidency. And I think basically everybody around him urged him to please not do this. And he pulled the I'm the leader of the freaking free world card. There's nothing you can do to stop me card. And he went ahead and did it. Now, that is not necessarily the same as saying I'm president. Can we get footage of people who are being walked to the gallows? And do we do a YouTube ad campaign so we can put the fear of God, uh, so to speak, as one of the sources who we spoke to uh, 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 described Trump's intention there, um, into criminals or would-be criminals. Um, I, I'm not sure how many hurdles there would be uh, to doing that. Um, I was reminded by someone I spoke to for this story that it actually reminded them of something that Trump did try to do and wasn't able to do when he was president, which was cre create a bunch of uh, TV commercials or TV propaganda that involved like depicting actual dead bodies piled up who were victims of the opioid crisis. It was basically his version of Faces of Death meets the Reagan era Just Say No campaign. And he, he was like, this is how we scare kids straight and keep them from ever picking up a drug or even picking up a legal drug like a cigarette. Um, I don't think I have to remind you that you and I would probably remember if something like that transpired over the past few years, and it didn't. Uh, so it, it's true that there are things that he can be talked out of, but when it comes to being the president of the United States, there's just so much immense unilateral power that it is not something that I am willing to count on as uh, as a cold comfort for us, especially not when it comes to the former president of the United States, who also, until very recently, used to be a very racist game show host on TV. The source tells you, this is the quote that you were just mentioning, the former president believes this would uh, help put the fear of God in violent criminals. He wanted to do some of these things when he was in office, but for whatever reasons, didn't have the chance. Now, the Washington Post ran an article last month that said Christian conservative leaders are trying to break with the former President Trump. However, they also cite some of those same leaders back in 2020 saying that Trump wasn't perfect, but he was the most likely uh, way conservatives could regain the White House. Do you think this fear of God through group executions is an attempt by Trump to specifically bolster support from Christian conservatives? And it does this kind of rhetoric work with Christian conservatives? Well, it certainly can uh, work with hardcore Republicans and conservatives who identify as uh, uh, Christian. Uh, I, I, that that that's uh, that that is a thousand percent the case in terms of 
would group executions help bring back more people into his fold who are evangelical or Christian right leaders and pastors who have since made attempts to defect to uh, camps, including but not limited to Ron DeSantis's or Mike Pence's or Nikki Haley's. Um, I'm not sure if that in itself would do it for him uh, right now. I think they care a lot more about things like um, abortion politics and policies and how the right and Republican Party moves forward on that in a post-Roe environment. Um, having said that, the thing that he needs to do to get these people to come back to him is just to start winning primaries um, uh, in 2024. All of these people who are right now saying, uh, oh, I, I, I'm uneasy about another Trump candidacy or another Trump presidency. The Republican Party needs to move on, and I'm withholding my endorsement to former President Trump. Um, I'd be willing to bet a large sum of money that all of them to a T end up running back or crawling back to him if it is clear that he is going to be the victor in the next re Republican primary. Um, several of them have very conspicuously, when asked about, left the door open to that possibility. Uh, there's not many of them who have actually, quote unquote, broken with Trump. They've tried to, and they've kind of tiptoed away, but they've all left the door wide, wide open to just running back to him and throwing their arms back around. You also point out that asked about firing squads and other execution methods, the spokesman for the Trump uh, campaign refers Rolling Stone to lines from Trump's 2024 campaign announcement. You then quote that campaign announcement stating every drug dealer during his or her life on average will kill 500 people with the drugs they sell, not to mention the destruction of families. We're going to be asking everyone who sells drugs, gets caught selling drugs, to receive the death penalty for their plan. Now, Swin, I've known a lot, and I mean a lot of drug dealers in my life. There's even one in the interview booth with me right now, and keep in mind, I am in the booth by myself. So, is there anything to suggest every drug dealer will kill or has killed 500 people in their time as a drug dealer. Is there some place where you can find a source for that, for the kernel of truth, for this insane remark? Well, I'll see if you can be my source on this. How many people have you killed in your lifetime? <laughs> yeah. Listen, buddy. Like, like <laughs> oh, oh, only like four? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not 500. It was nowhere near 500. It sounds like you're, you're, you're slacking off um, <laughs> and that you have a poor work ethic. Uh, that's the case. But no, all... all uh, jokes aside, I mean, no, no, I, I, I don't think anybody has been able to find uh, actual hard evidence for, for that claim. But you know, what, what else is new? Trump just says something, and he, uh, he, he, he just goes with it. I mean, I, I really don't know where he started getting that stat. If it was something that uh, uh, a close aide showed to him that they saw on a meme on Reddit or somewhere else on the Trumpified internet. I really don't know. I, I've actually been curious to this day exactly where he, he got that, because oftentimes when you're trying to figure out, OK, where did the leader of the Republican Party get what he's saying? There are a lot of times you can reverse engineer it like, oh, there was a viral tweet that linked to something from OANN that had just a random MAGA host saying something 
horrifically stupid that just mangled a lot of different facts and proverbs and statistics and that's how it ended up becoming actual white house policy in the year 2019 <laughs> like like th there are ways you can do that but with this particular one I, I i still have to do a little bit more um um uh reddit subreddit diving i guess <laughs> And you write that rules made during Trump's presidency made uh, federal firing squads more feasible. Previously, lethal injection was the only permissible federal method of execution. But under the administration's new rules, if lethal injections are made legally or logistically unavailable, the federal government can use any method that is legal in the state where the execution is located. So can the next president, can President Biden in this case, overturn those rules just as easily as those rules were put in place? And do you know to what extent he has? Well, um, that is something where Biden and uh, Merrick Garland originally, I guess we could say, talked a, a big game when it came to the uh, federal executions. Uh, Biden in 2020 campaigned on an anti-death uh, penalty platform, even going as far to say that it should be uh, it should be eliminated. We, we should not, the, uh, the feds should not do the death penalty. This was a significant step uh, away from what the past uh, Democratic presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton, ha had said uh, when in 2016 she was asked about it. And she basically bargained herself down to a position of, I am for it in extremely limited cases like Timothy uh, uh, McVeigh. Um, shortly into his tenure, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, reimpose the unofficial federal moratorium on uh, executing fe federal prisoners. Um, having said that, President Biden, as various activists in the anti-capital uh, punishment space will tell you, has been at best dithering on his campaign promises when it comes to this issue. Um, he has not followed through with any of the big reforms on this that he has been talking about. He is not even with a stroke of pen, which is well within his power, um, uh, he, 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 has, he has declined to uh, commute all the inmates currently sitting on federal death row, which, again, he could do with basically the, the stroke of the pen if he wanted to show that he was actually serious about this. And uh, Biden's own DOJ has also signaled a willingness to revisit uh, um, lifting their own moratorium on federal executions in the case of at least one prisoner. Uh, I believe this was uh, discussed uh, in in the past uh, couple of months or so. So that is the commitment that Biden, Merrick Garland, and the whole of the Biden administration are showing to their alleged values um, uh, on this issue. And on the other side of the aisle, you have your DeSantis's and your Trumps of the world, who, whether when he was president, in the United States or when DeSantis has been governor in uh, Florida, have showed a strong commitment to, to the death penalty. Um, I, I don't think I have time to get into it right now, but if your listeners want to Google Ron DeSantis uh, death penalty Florida, you'll, you'll see it all uh, for yourself. Um, so uh, th that's where we're currently at when you're looking at the um, uh, Democratic versus Republican positions on this matter. You have the Democratic side uh, talking a big game on this, but then, you know, kind of dragging their heels on it because, I don't know, they think they have other stronger priorities to take care of. And you have the Republican side that keeps uh, um, wishing for there to be 
uh, bloodbath after bloodbath on this issue. So, cheers. <laughs> we are speaking with Rolling Stone journalist Aswin Subsang. You can follow Aswin on Twitter at Swin24. That's S W I N 24. Speaking of Twitter, you also had an article earlier in February titled Twitter Kept Entire Database of Republican Requests to Censor Posts. Uh, you write that, uh, or you explain that, and you wrote that article again with Adam Ronsley, but uh, you explain that when the White House called up Twitter in the early morning hours of September, September 9th, 2019, officials had what they believed was a serious issue to report. Famous model Chrissy Teigen had just called uh, President Donald Trump a a bitch. And I'll take out all the other words, and I didn't even want to say bitch, to be honest with you. And the White House wanted the tweet to come down. That exchange revealed during a, a House Oversight Committee hearing at the beginning of February on Twitter by uh, Representative Jerry Connolly. And others like it are nowhere to be found in Elon Musk's Twitter files releases, which have focused almost exclusively on requests from Democrats and the feds to the funny, social funny media company. That. Yeah, that is weird. So how partisan do you think Twitter will get under Elon Musk? Is that not the right word to use? Should I be using the word ideological? Is it not necessarily Republican partisanism as it might be his own libertarianism? Is it moving toward being a kind of either libertarian or Fox News Channel version of social media? Well, uh, we've seen Elon Musk and the new regime at Twitter doing things where it certainly seems like that's uh, what he would want to accomplish. His um, his his uh, stated preference for his version of Twitter to be a bastion of free expression and that uh, basically nothing, including um, uh, criticism of him, would be beyond the pale. I think that's been conclusively proven again and again and again, including in his first weeks of ownership of the thing, to be uh, just a fantasy and that it is kind of ruled by ideology. Twitter is currently ruled by the ideology, not necessarily of conservatism, but of what Elon Musk thinks is uh, most alluring or attractive to him right now. And in at many times that basically, if you're trying to create, um, um, uh, it, it's... It's, it's an overlap, uh, a direct overlap for basically all of these different culture war desires and grievances of the mainstream American right right now. So uh, take that for what you will. <laughs> <laughs> and you point out that in interviews with former Twitter personnel, one-time Trump administration officials and other people familiar with the matter, each source recalled that well, what could be described as a hotline, a tip line, or a large Twitter database of moderation and removal requests that was frequently pinged by the offices of powerful Democrats and Republicans like are both major political parties trying to silence the other on Twitter is there any evidence the same thing is happening on other social platforms are they just trying to silence each other is one any more capable at this than the other well it, it's funny because they're on so many of these issues when it comes to big tech uh, censorship or kind of bringing the hammer down on uh, free speech on places like the internet. Um, these things that have to do with uh, government demands or requests or um, uh, um, uh, other communications with Twitter and other uh, 
uh, uh, big tech icons? Those are important questions to ask, and it is great to peel back the curtain as much as we can on that, whether it's the Trump White House or the Biden administration uh, doing it. But it's all kind of, in my opinion, plays a supporting role to what is going on in, with all these other macro policy fights where when you're looking at Republican politicians and lawmakers and those on the Democratic side uh, or a Democratic president like uh, Joe Biden or Republican one like Donald Trump, if you ask them about big issues like the repeal or at least the gutting of Section 230, which would be a major hit to free speech and expression um, on, the, on the Internet for not just major companies but your average American, uh, there is pretty much a uniform agreement in terms of both parties' hostility to Section 230. It's often evinced for radically different uh, uh, grievance-based and or uh, political reasons. But there is something to be said about a unity between uh, the Democratic and Republican Party when it comes to both of them wanting to crack down on uh, free speech on the internet, especially when it comes to Section 230 related issues. Um, it's just that you get different flavors of it. You either have Senator Ted Cruz talking about why Section 230 needs to be obliterated because too many of his pals were shadow banned or some other moronic sounding thing back in 2018 or whatever, or you have uh, the Joe Bidens or Elizabeth Warrens or whoever else of the world saying that we need to rein this in because it's it, it would be better for or for victims of sex trafficking or some some hysterical stuff like that so uh there is a unity of outcome if not uh, motivation on a lot of these issues uh if that makes sense you also quote evelyn dueck a professor of law who studies uh content moderation at uh, stanford law school telling you that one of the things in the scholarship around this for a long time is a desire to make government and platform relationships more transparent and more formalized so that you can't just have random people calling random employees trying to get stuff removed or put back up how would they go about implementing such transparency? And do you think either party has any d desire to do so? I'm so sorry. The line cut out basically until you said transparency <laughs> at the end of the quote. Would you mind rephrasing the question quickly to me? I was just saying, uh, how would they go about implementing such transparency? And do you think either party has any desire to do so when it comes to the relationship between uh, platforms and uh, government? No, of course not. Of course not. Um, uh, whether it's federal law enforcement doing it or uh, a Biden or Trump administration, no, they 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 would prefer to make these uh, um, uh, inquiries, as they would probably phrase it, uh, or demands, as their critics uh, would probably phrase it, uh, under as much uh, secrecy as possible, because. You know, then they don't have to uh, deal with uh, the public relations backlash from either the right or the left on these issues. Uh, and having said that, uh, governments and agencies will typically um, uh, uh, make these kind of inquiries to places like Twitter, asking them, "Hey, can you take this down? Can you or can you do X, Y, or Z?" Some of the demands will be perfectly reasonable and whatever who cares some of them a little bit more sketchy but i guess my perspective 
on this. And um, I am not someone who shares necessarily all the opinions of, say, a Barry Weiss or Matt Taibbi when it comes to these issues and what the Twitter files do or do not mean. I don't think we have time to get into my divergences of opinions with folks like that on these big issues. But what I will say is that people trying to dismiss government communication in general with these big tech platforms are kind of missing the point when they say, oh, a lot of these things are them just asking. They're not threatening necessarily uh, these private companies or trying or, 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 or ordering them to do anything. And if they did, that would be a direct contravention of, uh, um, uh, of, of the law, as we see with First Amendment principles. It kind of misses the point when you say that, um, because none of these things are done in a vacuum. They're done with the implicit, if not explicit, threat dangling above all these companies that for whatever reason, whether it comes from the right or the left, we can threaten you with uh, more re regulation. We can threaten you with Section 230 obliteration, which would uh, turn the internet and uh, various major publishers and platforms into uh, 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 you know, just horrific crackdown hellscapes. Um, and and we can always, of course, drag you before Congress to pelt you with as many moronic sounding questions as we want over and over again uh, till the cows come home. So I think it's important to watch these issues and these types of inquiries like a hawk, not necessarily because all of them are necessarily proper, but because the line can be so thin and easy to cross. And it's not like it's my mom or your dad or some random stranger beseeching Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey to do X, Y, or Z. It's the literal most like powerful government apparatuses on the face of the planet. <laughs> So, Swin, uh, we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may no hate boy. to answer, or our audience may hate your response. We've been speaking with Rolling Stone journalist Aswin Subsang, who has a couple of new articles over at Rolling Stone, including Trump plans to bring back firing squads, group executions if he re retakes White House, and Twitter kept entire database of Republican requests to censor posts. You can follow Swin on Twitter at Swin. Then the numbers two, four, we have been talking a lot about how it seems like the Republican Party, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, seem to be enamored with death. Does death play well with Trump's and or DeSantis' supporters? And if so, what does that say about their base to you? Well, I think absolutely it does. It obviously depends on the uh, uh targets of that in intended death if you are framing it as like a drug dealer or a drug lord or, or a uh ms-13 guy or um uh uh or uh, a combatant uh overseas that needs to be dealt with uh that that's one thing i, I mean i i don't necessarily consider making that an applause line the most humane thing out there but it is something that in American politics, particularly when it's someone like a Trump or DeSantis is making a speech to a rally full of their base supporters, plays very, uh, very well. There is there is a uh, uh, definitely a bloodlust there um, that um, um, that is very easily mined uh, for votes. And uh, guys like Donald Trump 
have no shame in exploiting that when it comes to millions upon millions of Republican voters. Now, uh, there is also a bloodlust out there, as we know, for their domestic political opponents. But Trump himself, even he is a little bit too shy about fully dipping all of his feet and and um, and body into that pool in the same way that he wants to with like an arrested drug dealer or someone like that. But I guess to answer your uh, the second half of the question, what does that say? Um, I mean, it certainly depresses me, but in a very casual way, because exploring bloodlust has been a major component of American political campaigns going back decades, if not centuries. So I don't want to sound too cute about it. I think it's something that uh, is is good to vote um, um, to 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 uh, to fight against in in a lot of respects, but um, but it is a very very American characteristic. On that happy note, Swin, thank you so much for being <laughs> on our show this week. A great way to start off our week. Thank you so much for being on our show. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much, and have a lovely week. All right, you too. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And that's exactly what WNUR and This Is Hell do. Put you above the bottom line. Without a focus on whether the ink is red or black, we can focus on what you, the listening audience, cannot get anywhere else on the radio dial. You will not hear the same corporate finance music that has become increasingly generic. Instead, WNUR plays the newest cutting-edge music as well as the avant-garde of the past. No, this is not the programming that attracts big advertisers, but it does attract people like you with discerning tastes. WNUR strives to provide a forum for underrepresented music and ideas by promoting musicians, musical genres, news, public affairs issues, and athletic events that are often overlooked by major media outlets support completely commercial free independent college radio now by visiting wnur.org donate to see all the donation tiers and how you can get a surprise vintage sticker postcard fridge magnet or airwaves for your hairwaves cd the wnur die cut sticker by northwestern artist hannah boruchov the wnur short sleeve t-shirt by another northwestern artist cora Pancoast, the classic WNUR orange beanie, the WNUR tote bag designed by yet another Northwestern student, Sarah Welford, the WNUR hoodie by, as you guess it, yet another Northwestern artist, Gemma DeCetra, or a hand-picked vinyl record or CD from WNUR's archive. Just visit WNUR.org slash donate. And as this is Fundraiser February, NUR is not the only station that carries This Is Hell that's raising money right now. CKUW, the University of Winnipeg campus and community radio station, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this week, is also in the midst of their fun drive. CKUW is a nonprofit, volunteer-run organization. CKUW does not air paid advertising, as the station prefers to be supported by the community and the dedicated listeners. CKUW is listener-oriented, listener-supported, as opposed to commercial radio, which is advertiser-oriented and advertiser-supported. To show your support for CKUW, just visit ckuw.ca, where you'll see all of their donation levels. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. And we got a ton of responses from our supporters at patreon.com slash thisishell. This week's question from hell is, where do you see yourself in five years? And let me make sure I got them all here. From 
John P says 20 years out of the U.S. Thank you very much. It's <laughs> a reminder of the question is where do you see yourself in five years? Five years. <laughs> <laughs> Public Universal Comrade says hell. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, where do you see yourself in five years? Erica E says vibing. <laughs> Me too. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Fabio L says in the mirror. See, <laughs> I believe somebody else had the exact same answer. That's the one that just, sure, it's funny, it's clever, also kind of cringy. What do you mean? I like, don't, just, it's just it's silly, like, it's just dumb, but it's hilarious, it's clever. Okay, that's the one you mean. Yes. I like it, I kind of like it. I think somebody else has the exact same answer, so keep going. Uh, Jeff D says, living in the seventh arrondissement as a cult leader of a gang of female pickpockets and jewel thieves in Paris. Oh. All right. Well, that sounds great. All right. Um... <laughs> Peter J says uh, homeless and very sweaty. All right. In five years. That's... Yeah, it's probably getting a lot of people. Yeah. With the way the you know things a lot are more going. People, yeah. The way things are going. Uh, Laddie S O, where do you see yourself in five years? Laddie S O says in Janky Town. <laughs> okay. Uh, Felipe C says. I see myself working for this company. Oh no, I would be wondering why didn't I invest in that thing five years ago. All right. Uh, Neil C says, not in a hot air balloon. (laughs) Good one. (laughs) Jeff H says, still owning my skills at procrastination and avoidance. Keep up the the hard work, Jeff. And here, Dan K says, in the mirror, probably. See. Probably. He might turn into a vampire before then and not be able to see yourself in the mirror. And that's all the ones on uh, Patreon? There's a, well, you know, okay, this is funny. There's a link that I haven't gone to yet, for so perhaps we'll save that till tomorrow until I investigate this link. Um, but our last response here on Patreon, John says, Probably in the rearview mirror. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know, but just another mirror being involved is driving me crazy. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, you win your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can see all of our stuff at our website right now, this is hell.com. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell uh, later on this week. Uh, <laughs> It's now time for our weekly segment. I was just annoyed by something I wrote down in here. Uh, It's now time for our weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, with Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a PhD in history and gives us the historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. Welcome to week three of Black History Month at This Is Hell. I am dedicating my segment for the four weeks of February to uh, talking about aspects of African-American history that are well explored and researched, but still not really that much talked about or understood well enough by a large part of the, well, mostly American population. 
This is difficult history, since I am going into some of the tougher issues, uh, the stuff that would make school boards in red states kick me out as a teacher. Because this is stuff that generally makes many white Americans uncomfortable. Yes, it's not fun being told that your ancestors were dicks or that you, yes, you personally, white person sitting right there wearing a shirt, uh, benefit in tangible ways from slavery today. But facts don't care for feelings, so uh, toughen up, buttercup. As I keep repeating, I am coming at Black History Month from an angle that is heavily informed by my having grown up in Germany. As such, I have a different understanding of how to deal with my country's difficult and horrifying past than if I had grown up in the United States. Namely, I want to deal with this horrifying past and not sweep it under the rug or convince myself that it wasn't all that bad, actually, and that certainly my own ancestors did not participate or benefit from these bad things. And yes, not all white American ancestors directly participated in slavery, but this is not a binary issue. Just because your people did not directly participate in the bad thing, they still benefited from it. Maybe that does not make them directly responsible for it, but they were still part of the same project, part of the same country, and part of the same nation, ostensibly. Maybe they were abolitionists, in which case, cool, are, are you one too? Are you an anti-racist? Or do you think that you have no responsibility there and should not be asked to maybe just a little bit be humble uh, when it comes to, to these issues? That's the thing with collective generation bridging guilt that nobody really gets away clean. Hell, even myself, who really has no personal connection to slaveholders whatsoever in this country, benefit from slavery indirectly. I benefit from being a white person in America, just as I benefit from the Holocaust as a German. In small and very hard to trace ways, but still, I benefit. Anyway, that's just to again reiterate why I'm doing what I'm doing here. So now let's talk about Jim Crow. Jim Crow was originally a racist parody character in minstrel shows. So a character in theatrical and often musical shows in which white people put on black makeup to perform as caricatures of black people to the hooting and hollering of white audiences. And that's also one of the reasons why you should absolutely never, ever do blackface as a white person ever, uh, because that's basically what that goes back to. Um, and after the end of slavery and the failure of Reconstruction, this character Jim Crow became the namesake for laws, specifically in the American South, that aimed at keeping black people down, that reinforced the white supremacy and the racial hierarchy that before the Civil War had been enforced through slavery. In the South, Jim Crow laws mandated, quote-unquote, separate but equal public facilities and institutions, segregated schools, segregated drinking fountains, segregated bathrooms, segregated public transport, so on and so forth. The uh, but equal part, however, was mostly a cruel joke. The blacks-only part of these things were basically always much worse than the whites-only parts. But Jim Crow describes not just a system of laws, but a system of social order, of social practices. And the system informed, among other things, how laws were enforced in general, just as much as it informed what laws were enacted in the first place. 
And while Jim Crow followed the failure of Reconstruction, the emergence of this system was overall one that took several decades and only fully appeared on the scene around the turn of the century, so in the late 1890s. And this was part due to a generational change in the South, where a younger generation of wealthy whites who had now grown up with a free black population came into power. And a generation of black people who had been born free matured alongside these younger whites. But as with all things, there was no single cause for Jim Crow to become the ruling paradigm. An agricultural crisis in the 1880s also contributed in another financial crisis in the 1890s came along. It's kind of funny how there's always a financial crisis given a couple of years. And um, then also the rise of populist politics in that same decade all fueled white resentment as well as a fear of blacks becoming too politically involved as much as uh, that was still possible in the first place anyway. The segregation of schools in the South happened for several reasons as well. One was that white lawmakers, following a grossly paternalistic streak, thought that black children simply lacked the mental uh, facilities that, that whites had, and that they were better off being schooled in segregated institutions where they would not be overwhelmed by all the contents being taught. Another reason was basically the opposite, the inverse. White leaders were scared that black children could learn too much and then grow up into adults that were difficult to control and keep in their place. The segregation of public facilities such as toilets and train cars, too, was justified through an odd form of paternalism. If blacks and whites were, quote-unquote, forced to travel together, southern white journalists asserted, they would certainly be the frequent subject of, rac of racial violence and the South would see quote, more dead, n-words, than have been heard of since Reconstruction, end quote. Blacks and whites were also never supposed to be incarcerated in the same prison cells, and they were forbidden uh, by law to work together when in prison. Southern blacks were also held in economic dependency on whites. Uh, this was most visible in the sharecropping system, in which black people then had to rent out tenant farms from white landowners and essentially pay for their tenancy with a large share of their crop. This tied many black families to the land much in the same way that slavery had. Due to the locations of these tenant farms deep in the backcountry away from settlements, they were also in many ways, in many, many cases, uh, wholly dependent on uh, their landlord for any sort of goods, farming implements, seeds, basically anything that they needed to buy ever. And the landlords, of course, exploited that to the maximum degree, overcharging them and running the black tenant farmers so deep into debt that they would never have a chance to escape their situation. And this, by the way, was one of the reasons why mail order catalog sales became a lifeline. When Sears Roba came along, ordering from their catalog for the first time allowed black people in the South to go around their landlords and enjoy a sliver of economic freedom. But why did these black people not just vote for better laws if the existing laws put them at such an awful disadvantage? Well, funny you should ask. There is a common misconception that black people were simply outlawed from voting, but nothing quite as blatant happened. Also, in some parts of the country, these things are still currently going on in some parts due to the endless wisdom of the Supreme Court and its 2013 gutting of the Voting Rights Act. So during Jim Crow, Southern whites kept black people from voting through a plethora of means. One was the poll tax, where voters had to pay a fee for voting. 
This fee was often waived for poorer white people, but very strictly enforced for all blacks. And since black southerners were usually poor, this excluded them from voting. Uh, another insidious measure uh, were literacy tests. You can find some examples of those online if you if you just Google, you know, like Jim Crow literacy tests, and you'll see they are impossible. Uh, Southern legislatures would enact requiring voters uh, being able to read and write under the pretext of election integrity. Sounds familiar? Uh, and then they would again waive these tests for white people or have officials help white voters, give them extra time and generally ensure that most white voters could cast their ballots. For black voters, things were different. Black people get very strict time limits and oftentimes these tests were also just developed and laid out in, in such ways that made them impossible to complete without leaving them open to interpretation. Bad faith interpretation, that is. The third option, and this is something that is now again happening in some places, was to simply not have voting places open where black people lived and requiring black voters to travel very, very long distances to cast their ballots. And of course, then there was also a violence and the threat of violence by white militias and the Ku Klux Klan, all of which kind of was uh, making a comeback, comeback these days. When whites enacted horrific violence against blacks, that more often than not went entirely unpunished. If anyone was caught and charged with a crime in the first place, the culprits then faced usually all white juries and white judges who simply refused to convict anyone, sometimes simply out of matter of principle. And black people could experience horrific violence and death for the smallest of infractions. The most common of those was when a black man was suspected of desiring a white woman. Here, the case of Emmett Till, a black boy from Chicago, is instructive. Young Emmett traveled from his Chicago home to visit family in Mississippi in 1955. In 1955, that is pretty recent. Um, there, he allegedly whistled after a white woman. A few days later, the woman's husband and her half-brother abducted abducted 14-year-old Emmett from uh, the home he was staying at, tortured him for hours before murdering him and dumping the mangled body in the Tallahatchie River. The two men were quickly caught, but the all-white jury and judge did not convict them of the murder. Uh, and years later, they actually bragged about the act in a magazine interview. The Till case, especially his mother's insistence on having an open-casted funeral in Chicago to demonstrate the, to the world what had been done to her son, and the national coverage the funeral received then galvanized the people that eventually worked towards the success of the civil rights movement. Which seems like an uplifting note to end on, but let's not forget that the murderers ran free and that the forces who want to keep our black friends and countrymen down are still out there, hard at work, trying to turn back time and to keep those they deem unworthy of a place at the table away from it. Because, well, this is hell, after all. <laughs> Sebastian, so uh, one of the things I was thinking about while you were uh, reading your piece today, and that was absolutely fantastic. Well, first of all, Michael Hawthorne from the Chicago Tribune, when he was on our show, talking about Forever Chemicals, uh, PFAS, and mm -hmm. how they've dumped a lot of that waste into community gardens in Chicago, including the community mm -hmm. garden that's next to the Emmett Till Memorial. And so now you can't grow food there. But it also mm -hmm. reminded me of an old friend who once asked me, 
why should I pay for reparations when, you know, my family never owned any slaves? My family wasn't even here in the United States. So you were talking about how you benefit from this, all these evil things, just like I benefit from them. So that's what I told him. I said, you still benefit from the legacy of yeah. slavery, just like African-Americans are still being punished, still facing inequality due to the legacy of slavery. And he just didn't buy it. He was just like, I don't care, man. That's something that happened before, and I don't get anything out of it. So I'm glad that you have the awareness, the self-awareness to recognize what role we play in this, even if we don't want to play yeah. that role. And I, I, I feel like that's, that, that's, that's, as I say, like, it's kind of a German thing, I guess, where you kind of grow up with the understanding that like, yeah, you don't have to have been personally involved or have your family have been personally involved in these things directly to still benefit from evil misdeeds that have been committed in your country's name uh, or in your race's name or whatever. Yeah. On that happy note, again, another happy note at the ending of a segment <laughs> here on This Is Hell. Uh, great to hear from you again, sir. And uh, I look for an email from you really soon. All right. Uh, so uh, this is not the media. This is hell. Thanks, Sebastian, for another great past inside the present. Lindsay, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? That's a good question. <laughs> it's all on paper now. <laughs> Writer Prem Thacker will discuss his new republic.com article. Sorry about that. It wasn't <laughs> article. In there. The Ohio train derailment, including life after the Ohio train derailment, trouble breathing, dying animals, and saying goodbye. The conspiracy of the Ohio train derailment is right in front of us, and Biden officials hesitate to update rail brake guidelines for fear of pushback. Jeez. And who's our final guest this week? On Wednesday, we have journalist Kari Lederson, who returns to talk about her uh, In These Times article, The Case for Nationalizing the Railroads. Also coming up later this week, we will have This Week in Rotten History. We will... I have all sorts of stuff. A singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. We'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. And uh, we'll tell you who the guests are going to be on next week's show. Before we go. No, let me just do this. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. Thanks to Sebastian Vuper for the past inside the present. Most of all, thanks for listening on Patreon this last week when we were putting prop people before profits, which is always a huge mistake. We did something very special. I usually do a monologue and then we play an archived interview that isn't available anywhere else online at the moment. We're trying to get all of our shows online for free for everybody and that's what we do Patreon for. Patreon.com slash this is hell again. But on Patreon this week, CKUW's Scott Price. That's right. The Winnipeg Community and College Radio, the University of uh, Winnipeg College Radio Station that we are on, uh, CKRW Scott Price. He interviewed me about This Is Hell, the difference between radio and podcasts, and why I do not like President Clinton. Spoiler alert, it's because he killed radio and handed it over to the far right. But the only way you can hear that is by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com 
slash this is hell and I really had a great time and I've been getting a whole bunch of emails from people up in Winnipeg and people who were former Winnipeggers who now live in places like Japan saying that they still listen to CKUW and they love the interview that we did. So there you go. Show your support for This Is Hell by going to patreon.com slash this is hell. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me of profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell raid. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.